the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, with me as always, the lovely Nadia Oxford. Hello, how is everybody doing? Not that you can answer me. And we are recording on the release of the greatest RPG of them all, Nadia. That is a controversial statement, but yes, it is an important day in RPG history. Oh, are you talking about Final Fantasy VII? I was talking about football. back baby <laughs> strategies and stats and fantasy oh man it's time that was a what f- were you talking about i was talking about final fantasy that was a pretty <laughs> funny exchange yes it is football season and i am ready to smash beer cans against my head and jump up all over the place while my team loses and stuff so well, that's part of the fun just kind of backing them even as they lose i should know as someone who lives in toronto i've said in the past uh, people always think that i'm a unicorn because i happen to like rpgs and sports let me tell you something nadia they're kind of the same dang thing i am writing an article today in fact about fantasy football and how there's so many similarities and yet fantasy stinks i hate it (laughs) like fantasy versus like say sci-fi for example like you you don't like swords and swords no no i'm fantasy football nadia fantasy football so you're saying fantasy football sucks yeah, it's terrible. I hate it because it looks like an RPG, but it's not actually an RPG. You're just playing the stock market. You're playing mm-hmm. futures. So you're, it's not quite <sighs> RPG enough, even though I think in the, our last podcast, I called it like an RPG and it's totally not. If Final Fantasy VII were about recruiting people from all over Midgar and then selling high on them, that would be fantasy, it would be much closer to fantasy football. That's a very interesting concept for, for Final Fantasy VII, if not disturbing. Selling high on uh, on Eris. Well, I'd uh, I'd sell Ketchy in two seconds. I that punk never enters my party ever. Well, you know, Eris gets a uh, the the healing staff or whatever, or she gets her ultimate weapon before the halfway point of the game, which should be your warning that she's about to uh, become weak. But she she has a really good growth curve and good healing and everything, and then bam, she's dead, gone. gone. Oh, by the way, that's a, that's not a spoiler anymore. It's been 20 years. Yeah. By the way, Darth Vader is Luke's dad. Holy crap. Are you kidding me? Uh, I did manage to remain unspoiled on Fight Club's big twist. Oh, did you? Oh, good job. Yeah, but that, you know, that was like 2005 mm-hmm. uh, when I finally watched it. But I managed to remain unspoiled on it for like six years before I finally watched mm-hmm. that movie. Uh, oh, but as I've... I think on this podcast, though, I've said that I was actually spoiled on Final Fantasy VII's big twist before it even came out here. Yeah, I think you mentioned that, but I can't remember how it went down. Um, it came out in Japan in January right. of 1997. And so the, the internet was a thing by 1997, and the people who were importing it and playing it were spoiling it. And my friend, who was paying careful attention to Final Fantasy VII at that time, totally told me about the big spoiler. And, of course, at the time, it didn't mean anything to me. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. But, but the of commercial course, spoiled it, too. Did it? I don't know if you remember, but the commercial like kind of showed a whole bunch of cinema scenes from the game. And one of them was just dead heiress in, in the water. 
My recollection of the TV ad, which I remember actually fairly clearly, is that it repeatedly flashes to scenes of the train. Hmm, I don't remember that one. Like rushing forward on the tracks um, in Midgar, and then it flashes back to the title, and it goes, Final Fantasy Seven. I do not remember that. I do remember our buses had ads like for uh, the games, like calling out Nintendo, basically saying like they were dead because Final Fantasy Seven was coming. I remember that there was a magazine ad with the Junon Cannon. I think that was the one. Yes, it was on our buses. That was a big shot. That was taking a big shot against Nintendo. Yeah. 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 Uh, the reason we're talking about so much about Final Fantasy Seven is in, we are recording it, in fact, on the 20th anniversary of the release of Final Fantasy Seven in the U.S. Woo. And we'll talk about it for a moment or two. But, oh, my God, I feel like we've talked about Final Fantasy Seven so much on this podcast over the years. But if you want to talk even more about it, or at least read some more. You know, a few months ago, Jeremy Parrish wrote a really nice six-part series about Final Fantasy VII for US Gamer as part of his Design and Action series. And you should go totally check check it out. I re-promoted it not too long ago. You can go find it on the site. Yes, and I'll be writing something today, too. It's, uh, it'll be up, of course, by the time this is up. But uh, you should read that, too. Message from the Future. Literally, the second comment that I got on that, by the way, was, why would you spoil the game in the description? (laughs) (laughs) I really hope that's a joke. I, uh, well, to all the people listening to this podcast, you don't know that Aerith dies as the central twist? Uh, I I don't know what to tell you. It's like a joke in pop culture by now. No, it totally is, at least in gaming culture. I I feel like it's part of the zeitgeist at this point. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know... Uh, can I just say, Nadia, that you you don't have to be spoiler free to enjoy a product no, because of context not. is everything. It absolutely is. I spoil so much crap for myself, but I still manage to enjoy it. it it's rare that I. The only game I would say go in with as few spoilers as possible is Undertale, but um, hmm. even then, like it, it's not a huge deal. As you say, context is everything. I, I rarely find myself disappointed when I'm like, oh, I know about this twist. I think the flip side is I don't watch movie trailers anymore. No, is I guess because they have too many spoilers in them, eh? No, it's more that I just don't want to know anything. Mm. I want to go in totally blind. I want to have the maximum amount of surprise because one of the most satisfying movie going experiences I ever had was when I went to Kill Bill in 2003, mm-hmm. not knowing anything how about that movie yeah literally nothing except that it is a movie by tarantino and everybody is praising it so i guess i'll go see it or something Mm -hmm. and coming out going wow that was amazing (laughs) i love this movie so much that was so cool like it hit five times as hard because i didn't know anything about that movie that's interesting how did you avoid any spoilers about that movie or anything it was 2003, pre-social media, and it was much easier to avoid information like that back in the day. Oh, God, it was 2003, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Oh, Jesus, Murphy. We didn't even have Facebook at that time. It's, it's, I was alive for a huge chunk, of course, the pre-internet age, but it's hard to even think back to, wow, no Facebook, no Twitter. How do we survive? In blissful ignorance, I guess. Uh, I would say that we survived a heck of a lot better than we do now, yeah. because social media is a blight that needs to be destroyed. We have some nice people who talk to us. 
I mean, yes, it's true. The, but broadly speaking, social media is uh, a social ill that really needs to be nuked from the face of the planet. And that's Cat <laughs> Bailey hot take of the day. Hot take but, of the day. Come, come, come back every day for a hot take by Cat Bailey. So if you, uh, so last week we had Josh Sawyer on the podcast to talk about Pillars of Eternity, Nadia. Mm-hmm. And this week, uh, Josh is going to be back again for another interview. This one also with Fergus Urquhart, who is one of the founders of Obsidian and was at Black Isle back in the day. And it is for our retrospective on Fallout New Vegas, which is going live on Monday. Yes, it was part of a trip to Obsidian that I took. uh, It would have been last month, about a month ago at this time. Uh, We did it as kind of a joint thing with Eurogamer and RPS and all of them. And I I really wanted to kind of just, everybody has talked a lot about Fallout New Vegas's kind of troubled development Mm -hmm. and how it nearly killed the studio. And it, the whole famous Metacritic thing where they missed one point. They were one point below the threshold they needed to hit to be paid out on all of their bonuses and everything. Oh, I hate that crap. I, I forgot it was that game that uh, you hear about that, like, you know, the whole bonus thing and Metacritic and how, you know, developers are bound to it. And I knew there was one game that was specifically cited for it. And I forgot it was Fallout New Vegas. Ugh. It's Fallout New Vegas. And but it has become a classic. Mm-hmm. Everybody Absolutely. loves Fallout New Vegas and consistently cited as one of the best games in the series, usually when they're bashing Fallout 4. And I wanted to kind of dive deep into what makes that game a classic. Mm-hmm. Why people, why it resonates with people so much. Why people really love that game. And the interview touches on some of that, touches on some of the making of the game, um, goes into a lot of the best quests, like the... Uh, the cannibalism quest, which is one of the best <laughs> RPG quests I've ever played. It's so good. So, And then, of course, you can look forward to the retrospective on Monday. So in any case, and we'll also talk a little bit about Final Fantasy VII, the new tyranny, Bastard's Wound expansion, and uh, also really quickly about <laughs> the news about South Park's difficulty slider. Did you see that. this, Nadia? I did, yes. That's that's pretty pretty funny. Oh, my gosh. So, Okay. Uh, South Park, the butthole of time's main way that they depict a difficulty slider is the easiest is white and the hardest is black. Yeah. <laughs> like dark, dark, dark skin. And I gotta say, that is bold. That is, and I like it. That is it. pretty bold. I know we've like kind of cut up their politics before and they deserve to have their their politics cut up, but that doesn't mean once in a while that they... They 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 are spot on with with stuff like mm. that. I mean, they have addressed white privilege in the past in one of their episodes. I don't know if you remember the Naggers mm. episode. Mm. Oh God, yes, yeah. I joke about that one a lot. Yeah, actually, and uh, uh, Stan was trying to apologize to Token, named Token, of course, and Token's telling him over and over again, "You don't get it. You don't get it." And it, the only the episode only ended favorably. When Stan realized, as a white person, he can't understand what a black person goes through. So he said to Token, mm-hmm. you're right, I don't get it. And Token says, now you get it. And that was yeah, it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, look, we're not going to get too political on this podcast. I I am not a big believer in stick to games or stick to sports. Yeah, that's but possible. I do think that one of the most troubling issues that is facing this country right now is the brutality with which the 
black community is being treated on mm-hmm. a routine basis and how we are consistently turning our eyes toward away from it. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to kind of put it out there in the media is rather than getting all preachy, as some people like to accuse South Park of doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> but to make them laugh, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's true. And if there's any genre that can kind of do that, I think, it's RPGs. Yeah, I guess RPGs have, oh god, RPGs have been political for the longest time. I mean, I talk all the time about the Breath of Fire series, and Breath of Fire 2, when I go back to it, I realize how, it basically, it's a statement against, you know, pushing out native religions in favor of, like, you know, Christian religion and, and all this mm-hmm. stuff, and I, w- I really wish it had a better translation, but uh, there's a whole message of colonialism and, like, you know, old gods being killed off for new gods, and it, it was really interesting. It was a very th- interesting RPG to go through at the time because the ESRB had just made it possible. There, there's no way Nintendo would have left that through before you could give a rating to games, but uh, it, it it happened, so it was my first really heavy RPG, and again, I really wish it had a better translation. Uh, it's weird to say this because of how much I slammed <clears throat> the South Park folks for their politics in the past, but I trust them a lot more than, say, Ken Levine to mm-hmm. have a kind of a cogent uh, argument to make in their game, even as they're being really gross and making like lots of body jokes and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, like I said, sometimes they get it very wrong and sometimes they get it very right. They're not like really, they're not wishy-washy in the way that like Ken Levine could be like, hey, both sides are really bad. Like, Ugh. come on, guy, you should know better. Bioshock Infinite's argument is just one of the most cre- one of the most cretinous things I've ever seen in a video game. Yeah, but and it did have like this uh, sort of really upbeat mix of uh, everybody wants to rule the world, like vaudeville. Everybody wants to rule the <laughs> world. I'm like, oh man, that's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, the message was terrible. Wipe away the debt. And then, of course, uh, meanwhile, Kojima always had a more gonzo approach to Mm -hmm. politics and games. It wasn't an RPG. That's true. But actually, one of my favorite things in Metal Gear Rising is the final boss is a U.S. senator with superpowers who's the supervillain. It's pretty great. (laughs) I never played that game. I always meant to. It looked like it was just a ton of fun. Oh, it's pretty amazing. And it's one of Platinum's secret best games. It's a little short. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I would strongly recommend MGS Rising. I really liked it. It looks like it's just like out of this world and crazy, but in a really fun yes. way. Yes. Oh, no, it was totally out of this world and crazy. Um, and of course, Kojima loved to tweak American politics oh, yeah. uh, to varying degrees of success in the Metal Gear series. But unfortunately, video games aren't very good at ha- handling politics in an interesting and mature way. They they tend to be rather broad They're certainly in the bad way they subtlety. depict things. They, they have yes. problems with subtlety. Yeah, uh, what a shock it is video games. So, but, uh, a lot of people say that South Park got a little too political um, in the past few years, mm-hmm. especially around the time of the election. But So we will have to see whether that ends up being reflected in the actual game. Yeah, I guess we will. It's uh, coming up quite soon. All right, indeed. Uh, another thing that is just coming out today, I believe, uh, Tyranny's Bastard's Wound expansion. Um, unfortunately, Nadia, uh, not getting too good of reviews. Oh, that's too bad. I like the name. Yeah. Oh, it's a good name. It's a ref- reference to a village that is just outside the old walls. Mm-hmm. And it is there that you can get some quests and everything. Um, The thing that people are kind of complaining about is the fact that 
it takes place in like act two rather than being end game content which is always the worst thing when you're playing a dlc it if you've already finished the game you don't want to go back to a quest from earlier you want to do an end game quest or something that extends the storyline right yeah absolutely you kind of want to you've said goodbye to the characters and you kind of want to go back and see them again so there's something kind of unsettling about just kind of going back further and uh getting yourself back into that mindset wedging yourself into that act it reminds me of anime movies that Mm. uh, are completely untethered from the main story or just a side story and so they don't add to the story much at all they're just a fun romp that happens to have really good animation the cowboy bebop the Cowboy Bebop movie is a, a prime example of this, and, where it's yeah. totally inessential. You don't have to watch it at all, but it's there, I guess, if you want more Cowboy Bebop. And uh, 99% of Dragon Ball Z movies. <laughs> there are Dragon Ball Z movies? Of course there are oh, Dragon God, Ball yes. Z movies. Um, most of them are eh, except uh, the one that kind of uh, does Trunks' past. That one, I really like that one. Other than that, eh. Meanwhile, in the Pokemon movies... Ash manages to catch literally every legendary ever introduced, but then ends up not being able to keep them in his team or ends oh, up having to release them. Right. And he, God, he can't, he can't hang on to a Butterfree. How's so <laughs> he supposed to hang on to a legendary? You know, I th- in a couple months, the new Pokemon movie, Pokemon I Choose You, is going to have a couple days in American movie theaters. Mm-hmm. I might go see it. You know what? I think a lot of Americans are going to go see that. Uh, and they're all going to be our age. Yeah, pretty much. And also, if you go, if you, if you go, you can get a Pikachu with the Ash Hat in Pokemon Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. Oh, really? Like you can get in Pokemon Go? I have three of those goddamn things. Yes, I, I think they're great, and I want one. Even though I never use Pikachu, it's just a, it's just a kind of, it's a trophy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. I, I think I think I've said this on the podcast, but one of the more shameful moments I've ever or one of the more embarrassing moments I ever had was when I was living in Japan. I went to see the Pokemon movie when it came out there solely so I could get a dark cry. <laughs> and when I bought the movie ticket, I've never been more self conscious in my life. Really? I guess back then it was like you didn't have too many adult fans, did you? It was all for like children. Well, I mean, it was more a case of being in Japan, I feel like it's even much more for kids over there. Right. And everybody in that movie theater, and especially the movies. <laughs> so everybody in that movie theater are families with kids, right? Right. And I sat in the very back and downloaded my Dark Cry and then stayed and watched the movie in Japanese and actually enjoyed myself, but was thinking to myself, yep, I am a grown-ass woman sitting in this <laughs> movie theater watching a kid's movie just so that i could get the dark cry so it was i say i say it was for good cause although this was um it's interesting to hear that there was downloadable content back then but i guess japan it's a little mm. ahead of the time in that regard it, it was a very it was a brand new thing mm-hmm. for sure uh the concept of the mystery gift was introduced for the first time uh in pokemon diamond and pearl right and previously with Sun, with emerald and ruby and sapphire in the gba it was pretty annoying because the only way that you could get the downloadable mystery gifts i believe was if you took them to an event you could plug it into a machine or something and they would send it to you right that's how you got mew though with fire red leaf green they introduced the wireless attachment to your gba Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
and you could also download through that oh. but there was no there was no connection to the internet there right. was no way to download mr gifts it was only local wireless wow like at some point uh, either you or i should write a thing about like evolution of like mystery gifts that would be really interesting mm. yes diamond and pearl was a big deal because it was the first time that you could play pokemon on the internet and That's that right. was when the community really took off in a lot of respects mm-hmm and then you could also get mystery gifts on the internet. Yeah. Or in movie theaters. Or in movie theaters. As an adult. <laughs> As an adult. But Tyranny's Bastard's Wound is being kind of uh, yeah, regarded as inessential. And the, other, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of people seem to like Tyranny, but it didn't get much of a marketing push. Mm-hmm. And... It ultimately kind of faded away. It didn't ultimately do that well. So Yeah, I think we talked about it. We po- talked about it on the podcast, of course. But didn't it come out at a time when there was just everything was yes. cascading from every yes. core of the world? Yes, I think so. And uh, I, I don't know. It When I played it, it was good. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I didn't like that they reduced the party size to four. Mm-hmm. I thought the combat felt a little stiff for the most part. The story was interesting, but in a weird way, it was almost the art was almost a little too stylized. Mm-hmm. I, I preferred the kind of gritty experience of Pillars of Eternity, to be perfectly honest. And Pillars of Eternity felt much truer to its roots. I really liked the dungeon crawling experience. I, I loved the D&D style yeah. interludes where you were making choices. Tyranny had... Tyranny was interesting in that you were always playing politics. I think that was mm-hmm. the best part of it. But eh, I just the fact that Bastard's Wound takes place in the middle of the game makes me less inclined to do it. It's the kind of thing they do when they're planning on releasing a Game of the Year edition. Right. So that people who miss it come back and go, oh, look at all this extra content. And then they're playing through it and they can experience it organically. See also Mass Effect mm-hmm. or Dragon Age Inquisition. Anyway, Tyranny Bastard's Wound is out now on PC. And if you have not played Tyranny, I would still recommend it. And you should just pick up the expansion with it. And then you can have a little extra content. Mm -hmm. But, okay, last bit of discussion before we head into the interview. Uh, Nadia, you're writing an article that you called a, a little more personal for Final Fantasy VII. And really quickly, like, what's the personal angle that you were taking with it? Well, there's two things about it. First of all, me kind of going over how what it was like to be a Nintendo fan who only had money for the Nintendo 64 and kind of coming to terms with the fact that, after much denial, that Final Fantasy VII was not coming to the N64. <laughs> I mean, I clung to Did that. Did you really believe that it was coming oh, out on God, the N64? Yes. I clung to that. That picture, you know, the one of the the silicon graphics machine of, of Locke's uh, mm. Terra and, and Shadow, even though I knew in my heart that I was like, oh, this is an N64 game. See, here's the proof. And even though I knew perfectly well that N64 games did not look that good, even Nintendo's games did not look that good. And also just the fact that when, at that point in time, when had Square ever just done a direct sequel to one of its own games, like... Final Fantasy VII would not star the characters of Final Fantasy VI. I knew that. But, you know, I just wanted to believe it for a while. <laughs> but the truth came out in the wash, and uh, I kind of had to uh, save up for PlayStation as well, because I came to the realization, not just through Final Fantasy VII, but through other games, that 
CD gaming and cartridge gaming were very different experiences, and I, would, I was going to have to find a way to get my fix of both. Of course, I also had to convince my parents that I needed both uh, a PlayStation and an N64, because they thought, like, one system was the same as another. Like, why are you wasting mm-hmm. your money? Mom, when is this one has CD? This one has a cartridge. Oh, I don't know. That's a, that's a waste so of they were treating it like VCRs, right? Exactly, exactly. Why do you need both? Uh, so eventually, I did get both. And what I'm kind of going into now is just the parts of the game that still I find very emotionally impactful. And it's funny to say that because we all make fun of Final Fantasy VII for having a bad translation, which it does, and having some silly story themes, which it does. Oh, there's just parts of it that still, like, just get me right where I live. And I could talk about some of them, but I don't know if I want to spoil my, my article. Oh, screw it. <laughs> just the, the, the part where uh, you lose Eris like an idiot. Like, whoops, Shinra took her. Uh, let's go tell her mom. And um, Elmira is, is telling you about like how she found Eris just like a, basically abandoned at the train station beside her dead mother. And, and Elmira was so lonely she had no one else. So she took Eris home. And something I realized as I got older is that's probably something that happened a lot in post-war Japan as well because mm. there are so many orphans and, you know, some, I bet many were probably just picked up and adopted right then and there. But um, that, oh, that's a good point. Yeah. So that's something, again, I realized that I was older and uh, I saw Grave of the Fireflies, etc. I was about to say, Grave of the, I'm getting some serious Grave of the Fireflies vibes right here. Train station? What, what a happy yeah. movie. It tells you how it ends right from the start and it ain't a happy ending. Um, but also the, the part where uh, I really like the part of the game where, where I'm about to call him Squall, where Cloud has to find himself and kind of like find his true identity and, and who he was. He's an interesting character. And I think one thing that's unfortunate is that he's been like classified as an emo nobody by, by the fandom. And that's really not true. He's kind of a jerk. But he, that's only because he has nothing in the way of memories or personalities until he, he has to gain one for himself. And that's a major theme in Final Fantasy VII. And if I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Parrish's piece uh, covers that in detail as well. Uh, again, I really wish it had a better translation, and that's one thing I'm looking forward to in the remake, if it ever comes to be. I remember at the time, the Labyrinthian storyline and all the loose ends being considered a positive rather than mm-hmm. kind of a knock against it. Mm-hmm. Because we hadn't really had a game that was quote unquote that deep before. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree that it has so many loose ends and so many like weird labyrinth twists. And it is the kind of game where if I, for, if I, I play it for, like, I've played it millions of times. And as soon as I stop playing it, I forget the story completely. And I have to play it again before I remember everything. Yeah, it took me a long time to really grasp all of the particulars of the story, especially because the Cloud and Zack thing is so confusing mm-hmm. the first time you're playing it. You're going, wait a minute, so Cloud actually wasn't a soldier? Who's the Zack guy? What? Wait a minute, I thought he was with Tifa. Yeah. Who's it? And then there's the the whole sequence, which I think is kind of corny, where Cloud ends up kind of recombining with himself yeah, i always like hated that so sequence jrpg anime is it's just brilliant in that context <laughs> they do that in xenogears as well oh, uniting surprised. the id and the ego and the super ego well, and that sequence literally goes two hours oh is that on the infamous second disc i never played uh xenoblade i just heard that oh yeah it definitely does it's just repeated clips uh over to Faye. Uh, young Faye with his eyes kind of covered by his hair 
covered in blood grinning cool like it just keeps going back to that over and over and over again for like two hours my god oh geez at least one thing you say for final fantasy 7 in that regard is that you know doesn't try to like be all ego and id and stuff like that it's just hey here's cloud he needs to find his identity it's stupid but it's pretty simple in that way of like you were just finding an identity for this dude one thing that so jeremy's final article was what happens when the good guys are kind of bad and he was pointing out that they're terrorists they kind of are yes they definitely are and one of the comments that i really liked was he said uh maybe final fantasy 7 is more relatable in 2017 than i realized as he pointed out barrett and the coal miners feel left behind but also too is rocket town which is a victim of failed promises and dreams it makes sense that large portions of the general population ignore the damage being done to the planet in hopes of returning to better times it makes sense that they believe Shinra will make their world great again, <laughs> despite all the evidence showing otherwise. And then somebody adds, Kaiser Warrior adds, yeah, when you look at it, Final Fantasy VII is a very prominent backdrop of depressed relics of the old industry dealing with being replaced by more modern enterprise. Even to a somewhat lesser extent, Wu Tai, a once great nation reduced to little more than a tourist trap, an amusement for those who conquered them militarily and ultimately economically. Of course, the entire point of Wutai is that it's a stand-in for Japan yeah. itself. That's what I've heard. Um, and I, I I guess it is there in many regards. Uh, I think they were forced to demil- demilitarize, and uh, as you say, they are a tourist town where they're uh, just for their, their traditions are there for everyone to kind of ogle at. Yeah, but I, I really like the connections being made to Barrett's hometown and Mm-hmm. say the coal mining towns in west virginia that feel i don't know left behind in a modern age and are kind of lashing out in a lot of respects yeah so, and the whole uh, you know hey let's uh, ignore the damage they're doing to our planet even though it's hard to ignore now <laughs> but uh just kind of we, oh sorry sorry you go ahead just kind of damaging our planet to, to scrape an, another day out of just kind of scrape by for another day we can rag on Final Fantasy VII kind of all we want. And I, I think there's plenty to rag on. And in some ways, a lot of the stuff that we found so amazing back in 1997 has become cliche. You know, mm-hmm. everybody points to Final Fantasy VII as one of the er examples of what a JRPG might look like, especially a quote-unquote more modern one. But I've always liked that there's actually quite a lot to unpack with this game. Mm-hmm. And that you can go down a lot of rabbit holes in dissecting it and analyzing it. And I feel like people might make fun of me for saying this, but I don't think a lot of games are that smart, to be honest. I I think that so many of them are surface level. So many of them are just really slap you in the face with their themes and everything. See Bioshock Infinite again. (laughs) And... Final Fantasy VII, maybe it's not always successful, but they really were inspired to do something kind of crazy. And you look yeah. back on it and you go, man, what an ambitious game. It really was ambitious. Um, they really, Square had a, uh, a mission to just kind of come on the, the into the new generation with a bang, and they, they sure did that. Yeah. By the way, if you did not, I don't know, a while ago, 
Matt Leone did a really fantastic oral history of Final Fantasy VII mm, for Polygon, uh, which he spent like a year on. Which I wish I could. I wish I could just assign somebody to be like, okay, go work on this feature for two years. You have an unlimited budget, but hey. <laughs> that's what you got when you have those sweet, sweet investors pouring money into your company. But, um. Yeah, we also had him on the podcast to talk a little bit about the making of. Uh, so if you go back in our archives, you should be able to find that. Uh, lots of really good information about Final Fantasy VII. But I think needless to say, it's weird. Final Fantasy VII, there was that period where everybody was like, Final Fantasy VII is the greatest RPG ever made, bar none, mm-hmm. no discussion. And then there was the backlash where people were like, Final Fantasy VII is super overrated. Yeah. There are way better RPGs out there. Look at all these problems that it has. And now we've kind of come back full circle where people maybe are appreciating Final Fantasy VII for what it was. I, I know that's where I am. I know I, I consider it a flawed masterpiece, like a heavily flawed masterpiece. But I think it did so much for the, the RPG genre, especially bringing more people to it, which was... That was a big thing because until then, RPGs were for stupid nerds and nobody else. And then all of a sudden, like... Final Fantasy VII is one of those games you can you can refer back to for almost anyone who who is a, who is a gamer who considers considers himself a gamer. I don't think I want an FF Seven remake anymore. I'm I I kind of do I I, I do no. I no. do. You know why I don't want one? Because it's not because it's be. just it's just not going to be the same. No, of course it won't be the same. But if I have it's, if I know in my heart it won't be the same, I can deal. I can not only. It. Not only will it not be the same just because the times are different, games are different, and mm. they are clearly setting out to make something very different. Square was different. Square yes. was a different company. This yes. was pre-merger. They had very different people, very different talent working on this game. Many of the originals are coming back mm-hmm. to work on it, no doubt. But it it's just not going to be the same. And I appreciate that you can have a new take on it and everything, but I'd kind of rather just let it stand on its own. I'm, and I'm still... I mean, there are a couple, there are a couple of really good ways to appreciate Final Fantasy VII right now. You can play it That's on true. PC with all the mods. That's true. Or you can play it on PS4, which is a port of, I believe, the PC version, mm-hmm. which has like lots of cool little bells and whistles with like being able to fast forward through things. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool for the summons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really essential, especially because you couldn't skip through the summons until Final Fantasy IX. Actually, you couldn't even technically skip through them then. They just had shortened versions. Oh, right. They really wanted to show off their work. Look what we made. I mean, yeah, that was the problem with Final Fantasy VIII was that you didn't want to... There was a real disincentive against using summons because they were unskippable and they were too freaking long. Mm-hmm. The ultimate summon was like two minutes. Was it really? I remember Night of the Round, of course, from Final Fantasy VII was like a minute and a half practically but which one was two minutes and eight? Oh, i don't remember it, it was the ultimate one it was the best one you could get it was longer than knights of the round oh my god and they always did it where they're like oh but you can get this boost ability and hit boost <laughs> and then the real joke the real joke on everybody in final fantasy 8 was that you would get to the final boss and if you tried to use a summon they would just destroy it i remember oh that was pretty awesome that's hilarious yeah great so all the people who just relied on summons all game went, oh, oh, dear. oh crap. <laughs> oh, you weren't playing the game right until now. Well, I got bad news for you. Well, that's how you know you're in trouble. 
the number of rev- contemporary reviews from that time that were like oh you could just get through playing with summons you know like it's just spamming summons i'm like you really don't any know anything about this game but <laughs> yeah final fantasy 7 20 years old time passes by just wait until 25th anniversary we might be a couple years away from the remake by then Uh, if we're lucky or we'll get another uh compilation of Final fantasy 7 god help us god help us all right nadia we are going to go move on to the interview with the obsidian folks so don't go away we'll be right back Okay, I am here now at Obsidian once again with Josh Sawyer and also with Fergus Urquhart, who is the founder of Obsidian. Um, mm-hmm. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank and you. Awesome to be here. If you go over to the site, usgamer.net, you will see that we have a Fallout New Vegas retrospective. We are talking about how Fallout New Vegas became a cult classic. I remember reviewing this or doing the guide for this game at one up seven years ago, which is kind of crazy to think about. And I was just telling Josh off the air that I ended up totally breaking that game, actually, mm-hmm. uh, because I was having to play from the perspective of every single faction. <laughs> but my my biggest dream was to infiltrate the Legion, let the Caesar die on the operating table, and then join the NCR. And just be like a turncoat double agents. <laughs> and if, like, I don't remember if that's possible, but I really hope it is, because that's awesome. Like I said, it's tricky because each of the factions has their different sort of, like, point of no return for them. And I think that it's possible to do that, but I'm not positive. I, I, you, I'm probably, one, not, I wouldn't say the last <laughs> person to ask that question, but probably it, close it to the It gets tricky, because when we started working on Deadfire, um, because we're, we're having a lot deeper faction sort of in, uh, gameplay... Uh, we went back and looked at Bobby Null did not really know how involved the faction no. stuff was from Fallout New Vegas. Mm-hmm. And he looked at it and he was like, oh, my God. He's like, this is so complicated. And I'm like, embrace it, Bobby. And like, yes, yes. It's it's cool. I just I think the faction stuff, I, you know, I always thought was was so fun because, like, I think, you know, and this is where I have to give Josh and everybody else that worked on a, a ton of credit. It's just like because a lot of factions were not set up that you 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 are supposed to like them all. Yeah, you know, I think the Caesar's Legion is like the greatest. It's certainly not. Yeah, Caesar's Legion like is a great <laughs> example, but it's it's so interesting of the playthroughs because I just went. I'm like back playing Fallout New Vegas again um, uh, for a game that we're making that's not Fallout, um, and and I wanted to go back and get that experience and see how it was, and, and it was interesting. So then I tried to play that part multiple ways, where I actually talked to him. Other times when I would just shoot him off, like <laughs> just shoot them right away, and I think that was what was so awesome about New Vegas. It didn't go in with this idea that every faction was going to be. Um, someone that you could potentially you would want to join or be a part of yeah so i mean look i mean at the time like fallout new vegas like it came out was pretty buggy like reviews like it it was trouble um there's that famous story of you guys missing out on bonuses by one point on metacritic (laughs) which uh uh, fergus is like nodding yes (laughs) yeah that's right this isn't on video is it yes (laughs) (laughs) um but it, in that time that it's become like kind of this beloved game, mm-hmm. right? Like people, like it has a perfect score on Steam. Like people talk about it kind of reverentially. Uh, like to what do you kind of attribute that change? I, I think that, I think a lot of, um, whether it's films or books uh, or games that do wind up becoming sort of cult classics, I think it's because there's there's something underlying about it that is not, really seen at first at Mm -hmm. first glance 
So for example, Fallout New Vegas, um, you know, if you're if you're a player just kind of jumping in it from Fallout 3, or if you're a viewer who doesn't necessarily have a ton of time to play it, you don't necessarily appreciate that you can become friends with Caesar, mm-hmm. execute Caesar on the operating table, jump across the Colorado River, and then like join another faction yeah. and then betray. Like you don't necessarily see the surface as it feels like Fallout 3. Yeah, the surface. And not that Fallout 3 is a super simple game, not saying that, but it's sure. just on the surface, like if you don't d- d- dive into it, which takes time, so time yes. is the big thing then you just feel it's follow three. Yeah. And so I think that, I think it took time for people to realize like, oh, there's actually, there's really a lot of different ways that you can go with this game. There's a lot of different perspectives that you can get on things. There are a lot of people who say that their perspective of, let's say Mr. House is informed by certain interactions that other people don't see. Or the NCR, the NCR is so vast that there are a lot of people who are like, NCR are totally good. And other people say like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like I went here and I saw how the NCR was doing this stuff and they're totally bad. Um, So I think it took a while and it took communities really talking about this Mm -hmm. for it to um, to kind of take off in in people's minds and go like, wow, there's like really a lot of stuff going on in there. And I think that was all like, this is where I give Josh, you know, and the team a ton of credit as well. It's just this idea, you know, Josh is always a huge proponent of player agency. Like that's, that's like a big thing of like, and the idea of player agency, which you can do in a role-playing game, which is harder to do in other type other types of games, is really, and that's what leads to if you if you say, hey, players can play this game the way that they want to play it, and if they're going to want to play it this way or this way or this way, how do we make the game work to support all of that? <laughs> and which is a nightmare a lot yeah. of the time. Um, and it's funny because I think that's actually the the there there there's a couple things that go. This is not a this is not in a, in a way to to sort of like fluff, like to to say something was not a problem. But it's odd when you give all those options, you're sort of inviting bugs. Um, because <laughs> when there's so many things the player can do, how can, like, you can set up like this weird chain of like, you joined A but not B, but C you killed, but D you did this, and E, and if it's all coordinated, having play, play testers test that is... is is a, is a is a challenge, and again, that's not that you try to explain it away or anything like that. But it's like it's almost like the good versus the bad. Yeah. Although, can I talk mm-hmm. about my favorite bug in Fallout New Vegas? Oh, you can always talk about your favorite bugs. So there's so many to choose from, but <laughs> my favorite, my absolute favorite, which we did catch before launch, um, there's Arcade Ganon's uh, companion quest is called for Auld Lang Syne, and it's where you go and you talk to all the old members of the. Uh, the Enclave, mm-hmm. and one by one, you get them to kind of come back together to help with Hoover Dam. And toward the end of that, there's one of the members of the group, Orion Moreno, who hates NCR because NCR destroyed Navarro. And he's like, I'm never going to work with that. Like, I, no, 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 no. And he gets really mad. And so he's waiting for you in a suit of power armor with a, you know, Gatling laser, I think. And, you know, the other remnants say, like, yeah, I think Orion has kind of worked up. <laughs> so you go out and he confronts you and he's like, there's no way I'm doing this. You're not making me do this. And you can talk him out of it, in which case he can, you know, join the group. Uh, or you're forced to kill him, in which case, hey, you get some pretty sweet uh, Enclave power mm-hmm. armor. <laughs> yep. And, and a Gatling laser. Um, so you take it off of him. You know, they say, well, he's not going to need it anymore. But then what happens is. This you, is the bug. This is the bug. You go to the Battle of Hoover Dam. So it's been hours since you've resolved it this way. So you go to the Battle of Hoover Dam, and you go out on top of the dam, and you see Daisy Whitman's Enclave Vertebird fly down, and you see Doc Johnson jump out, and you see Judah Krieger jump out, and you see uh, Cannibal Johnson jump out, and then you see the dismembered corpse of an old man naked <laughs> flop out onto the bridge because that's a persistent object in the world. Yes. 
and it doesn't check to see if he's alive or dead. It just yes. says move. It knows he's dead. It moves Orion yeah. Moreno to that position, which looks like Campbell Johnson just threw his body out of the <laughs> vertebrate. So yes, the fact that you can kill him or not kill him is in fact uh, a source oh. of bugs. Yeah. <laughs> when I look at Fallout New Vegas, like the thing that kind of screams at me about it is passion project uh, for you guys. Like obviously, you guys worked on Fallout Two. Uh, I mean, you guys worked on Fallout 1 back in Black mm-hmm. Isle. Like, mm-hmm. it's your baby. And, uh, like, I was just wondering if you could speak to that. Well, you know, it's. I think a part of it is, I mean, we, I mean, the best thing about getting to work on Fallout 1 and Fallout 2 is that we loved it. Like, it just, it was like, um, you know, Tim and Leonard, it was Tim and Leonard and Jason and then Jason Anderson's baby. And, and, um, and you know, I was very lucky in that I was able to kind of be there and work on it with them and help them get it done. And But I would never take, it's, theirs. They're, they're the ones who made it. Um, I played, I tweaked around it a little bit. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting though, but like when I think, at least for me, when I left Interplay in Black Isle, I had not left for as long because I was always hoping we could really make Fallout 3. And um, even though I had canceled the first incarnation of Fallout 3 and became Icewind Dale, um, was, it was just that I, you know, and, but like kind of when I did that, I kind of closed the door. You know what I mean? I still love Fallout, but it wasn't mine anymore or i wasn't a part of it as much anymore um and so now it was incredible to get to return but it was but i think we all knew or at least i knew it was sort of like it was getting to take a vacation in fallout again but it wasn't something that was going to like that was going to be a permanent thing that we were going to get to do but so from the passion of it is i guess the passion just came from loving fallout um and getting to play play it in that world again um, but it wasn't sort of this, I don't know, for me at least, it wasn't this sort of like overarching, I'm going to kill myself to exist in the Fallout world forever. <laughs> um, because I think a cool thing about making games and being an independent studio is we get to go do different stuff. You know, we got to make Fallout and South Park and Pillars of Eternity and Alpha Protocol and all those kind of things. Um, and so, you know, and, and so that was, but it, so in that way, it was great to return, but it's great to be able to do other stuff too. Yeah, I think in my mind... Um you know, I had already lost the chance to work on Fallout by the time that, you know, I came to Black Idol mm-hmm. and it was like, next project, Fallout 3, next project, Fallout 3. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. And, uh, and so, and I didn't, I did not expect to ever get to work with Fallout again. And so then when we actually did have the opportunity, in my mind, I recognized sort of as Fergus, like, this isn't ours anymore, but it's a thing that we can, you know, that we love and we can make something in. And I always, I kind of in my mind, I always thought, like, this is my one chance to yeah. do this. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and so I just wanted to make one really great, you know, game in that world. And uh, But Fergus is right. Like, we, you know, we bounce around. We work on different properties, different genres and things like that. Mm-hmm. Genres within RPGs. Yeah, yeah, with our um, <laughs> settings, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but, uh, but no, I mean, that's kind of how I approach it is, like, we got one shot at this. Mm-hmm. So let's make something really awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at uh, the popularity of just Fallout New Vegas in general, or like Fallout in general, like mm-hmm. why does this world speak to you? Like what about this uh, this game? Like just keeps drawing people in because like it's, it's the same. It's the case with Fallout Four as well. Like people are just gonna keep playing this into the freaking ground, mm-hmm. and they're still playing your game. Like mm-hmm. what is it? Uh, I think it's the the freedom to explore, the freedom to make so many different types of characters and character concepts, and see how how viable they are in the world, the places where they don't work. Um, the fact that it is so vast, there's just so much stuff to do. Even in Fallout 1 and Fallout 2, there's just an enormous amount of content to go through. Um, I think a lot of people really love the setting 
because it has dark humor. Um, and, and that's always kind of been at the core of it. Uh, it, it's a very grim setting, but it's also full of a lot of like (laughs) sort of dark, dark jokes and just regular old jokes. Um, and that's something that I think, you know, we can sometimes, especially in role-playing, especially fantasy role-playing games can get very serious. Um, like welcome to serious mode Mm -hmm. and, uh, fallout. Uh, it always just had a light side to it, no matter how dark it got. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing that people really, they like that there is goofiness in it. Um, I think, and I, you know, and it's maybe criticism of Fallout 4, but it's not intended. I think, I think, I don't know, it's it's almost like Fallout New Vegas embraced that feeling from Fallout 1 of the, of the, of the vault builder walking away from the vault. Like this, like you, you can, inc- you can involve yourself with the Legion and with NCR and, and, and Mr. House and, and all this kind of stuff. But you were just, you were kind of this own being. Um, and it's not that you're not in Fallout 4. It's not that you are like um, secondary to the factions, but the fa- it's a very strong connection. Like you have to make a faction decision, and and you and you and you're following these very kind of long. I don't know. It's, I don't want to say longer faction quest things, but I don't know. It feels like I I it was more me in Fallout New Vegas, being this survival you know survivalist and. Well, I, I think that I mean a lot of my ins- my inspiration for like the vibe of your role in it came from Fallout One and Two. But also Spaghetti Westerns, mm-hmm, Yojimbo, mm-hmm. like the man with no name. Like the man with no name, he comes into town. Mm-hmm. A lot of people die. Then the man with no name leaves. Mm-hmm. Like and he keeps yeah, and, yeah, he, yeah. and he goes. He doesn't. Yeah. He's not going to set up a farm. Like that mm-hmm, dude is mm-hmm. leaving. Um, so that vibe, and especially because I wanted to reinforce more sort of like Western mm-hmm. ideas, which overall, because that's the vibe, and that's probably the difference. Is sort of saying difference between New Vegas and Fallout Four. They, they, what we did was to was to hook the vibe into the setting and where 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 it took place, and that's not to say like how Fallout Four did what it did was bad by any stretch of the means. It's just a different game player, you know. And I think it's it's odd because people would say, well, people are playing Fallout New Vegas um, instead of Fallout Four, and I think it's just because they both types of people love Fallout, and it's just a different like it's your different style of Fallout that you sure. love, and that's it. It's just like if you, it's like subgenres within Fallout, and I and I choose that I like. Like, do I like cars or Monsters Inc? I it doesn't have a stupid <laughs> analogy, but but I mean, you know, I think that's what it is. Is and sort of like I I we all as a group love Fallout, but I want this kind of Fallout experience. I want the, uh, but versus I want this kind of Fallout experience. Sure. I think another reason that Fallout New Vegas kind of resonates with people maybe is like the Shades of Grey. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of moral ambiguity going on in this game. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the Brotherhood of Steel, like I mean, they kind of bring order to the wasteland, but uh, they're really uh, iconoclastic and they just kind of do their thing, mm-hmm. and they will not brook any mm-hmm. like it's, you're, yes, it's their way or the highway. Pretty much, uh, there's not. I mean, there are definite bad guys, but even the Legion, you kind of go, oh yeah, bringing order to like a chaotic <laughs> wasteland, yep. I guess. Mm-hmm. So it's like. You can see the good and the bad of everything. And one thing that actually Josh stood, uh, mentioned to me that really kind of resonated with me was that he said, nobody remembers the critical path. Like, never, nobody goes, yep, I sure did enjoy somebody playing somebody else's story. Like, yes. everybody <laughs> has their own story. Yeah, it's the player agency part, yeah. Yeah, and New Vegas, like, I think really just gives you a chance to have your own story, right? Yeah, and we, I mean, this extends to certain decisions that are sort of high-level that I said, you know, at the beginning of Fallout New Vegas, I said, or maybe not the very beginning, but pretty early on, I said, you have to assume that after a single conversation face-to-face with an NPC, 
that the player shoots them in the face. <laughs> so all of your quests must be constructed with the assumption that that character can die as soon, like right after they get introduced. And it makes it more difficult for the designers. It makes it more difficult for the writers, but it goes to that sense of agency. Like I can choose other than children. I can choose to blow away anybody that I come across. And we took that as far, even though it's a little absurd, but it, it kind of reinforces the point. Even Yes Man, you can kill Yes Man and Yes Man will come back in a different Securitron body and he'll say, I'm sorry I made you mad. <laughs> like, let's start over. And you can kill that one and then another one will come back. Yeah. Um, but it really is going to that sense of like, don't like really design everything so that when the player pushes, it gives way. Like the player goes, oh, I am still in control. I do mm -hmm. still determine how the story goes. Right. Uh, I think I was somebody was wondering like why can't you be like a crazy axe wielder running around in their underwear in the in the wasteland? I'm like, well, you theoretically could in another like Fallout or whatever, but I mean, there's not really an end to that, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there is kind of an end to that in New Vegas. Like you could hypothetically do that, kill everybody, and then end up ruling over a dead wasteland. Yeah, you can you can go through, and I mean that's and we did try to account for that, like. You know, you can go around and just butcher everybody that you come across and encounter Yes Man, mm -hmm. have a conversation with him, chop him into pieces, go do what he asked you to do, uh, chop all those people into pieces that he sent you. So he can say, go talk to the great cons. And you're like, oh, I'll go talk to him. And then you go to the great cons and you chop them into pieces and you come back and you're like, yeah, they're not going to help out. And then kill him. And then, you know, he says, okay, go talk to these people. And you can just go through yeah. axe murdering everyone and get to the end of the game. You can do that. And then the end slides will show devastation across the wasteland yeah. so <laughs> okay I, I wanted to ask you um so obviously you guys worked on your own fallout 3 it was van buren and that partly became what ended up being fallout new vegas and one question that i had was there was some speculation on this front in your mind is van buren canon like did those events happen in your mind no no no, no they were i mean you know i, I kind of mentioned before like chris avalone wrote an enormous, you know, follow Bible. And he had, he had, you know, just an incredible amount of material for ideas for various elements, factions, characters of, of what could be Fallout 3. Um, it was, it was way more than like a single story, like way more than 10 stories probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I never really thought like, oh, the things that were going to happen in Van Buren definitely happened in the Fallout universe. Uh, what we just said when we approached New Vegas is like, what are some characters and ideas that we liked in Van Buren that we could see in this setting, which is pretty close by. Like a lot of the Fallout 3 stuff that Avalon had been working on was around that part of the Southwest. Mm -hmm. And so we just said like, what elements do we want to bring over? What elements are we going to bring over, but we're going to change? Yeah. And then we just took it from there. But really like bits and pieces came over, but it's not like New Vegas is like a reimagining of mm -hmm. Van Buren or yeah. anything. Okay, uh, really quickly, we're going to do a little bit of a lightning round here going, all right. Jeez, <laughs> I'm bad at these. Favorite quest? Oh, my God. Um, uh, it's too easy, but I'll say it because I thought it was, 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 where's the beef? Is, or beyond the beef. Beyond, beef. beyond the beef. No, where's the beef? Beyond the beef. Was That's a, the cannibalism one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. thought that was, that was, a, that was a, just because of, like, how crazy it could be. Yeah, I really liked um, Come Fly With Me, which was one of the first quests oh, that we did. Oh, goals and stuff. Um, yeah, that's true, yeah. I actually recently remember Chris Haversham, the guy who said, he was like, I'm becoming a ghoul. And you're like, why? And he's like, I'm losing all my hair. He was bald, and that's yeah, why yeah. he thought he was yeah. a ghoul. But like, there were so many goofy things in it. Um, the way that you could interact with the... There were great characters at, um, you know, like Nobark Noonan... Um, all the people in the town, uh, the characters that you encountered in Repcon itself, and then the end sequence was really fun. 
So there's a lot of cool stuff in there as well. So I, I really like Come Fly With Me. NCR, Caesar's Legion, or Mr. House? So I will answer that differently now. <laughs> it was interesting because I, like, literally the, one of the first times when I did more of a playthrough is I just, like, I would wa- walk into, um, oh, I'm being bad with names today, the, where, where you meet Caesar's Legion in, um, not Novak. Um, uh, oh, um, Nipton. Nipton, yeah, Which just Nipton. got bought, by the way. By a company, a weed company. Bought Nipton? Yeah. <laughs> wow. To grow and sell weed to there. To grow weed. Oh, right. um, to uh, weed time. No, it'll just be weed time. <laughs> weed by the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I just shot him, right? And, you know, and because I'm like, oh, these guys suck and they're putting people on poles, right? <laughs> um, I think the last time I talked to him and I just thought, I, I thought they were super interesting just because of exactly what you were saying before of like, like, yeah, they're vicious and horrible and all this other kind of stuff, but there's a purpose to them. You know, and they and it's not just they're being vicious and horrible to be vicious and horrible. And so I, I thought that was interesting. Caesar just wants to have a debate. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that you die at the end. Yeah. yeah, and I'll never answer that question. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So what, what Josh is actually saying is that he's a wild card. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that either. Oh, okay. Um, now I always picked NCR because I'm boring. <laughs> and I'm willing you to... You like em- bureaucrats. I'm willing to embrace flawed systems. <laughs> I don't care. Yes, I, I'm willing to turn a blind eye to yes. all of the NCR's flaws because at least they yes. kind of resemble something good. Well, and I think more so, and I'm not going to answer for Josh because I don't know his actual answer, but I think if I if I could almost think of his actual answer, it might be it's himself. Uh. <laughs> no, it's yeah. it's really, it's well, in the sense that I'm the player, yeah. Yes, I mean, because I mean, yeah, the yeah. thing is, like, you're, be, you're your own faction. To be honest, like, I don't actually think about the factions in terms like that. Yeah, I yeah. think I always think about presenting the factions in a way that, like, a lot of different people are going to see different mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. in them. And the reason I don't answer that question is because I don't want the audience to ever feel that my authority, like, that there's authorial intent there. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I want them to feel that whatever choice they made is completely valid as valid as anyone else is in their mind. And I don't want my sort of opinions, which are actually not very defined, um, to yeah. overwhelm that. Companion of choice? Oh, I, you, you go. I can't. I've tried it. I would, I would say I like Raul a lot. Um, Raul and Cass are both really good. But Bo- I mean, I don't know. It's hard. I like Veronica. Boone, yeah. Boone is just so useful. Yes. <laughs> Boone is and, and, he's, and he's a great character. It's, uh, it's, it, I don't think that there's one that I would pick, but I do really like Raul. I really like Boone. Um, yeah. I probably went around with Boone the most, but what's, I guess, for me, what it is, is interesting. Like, while I'm a big companion guy in all ever role-playing games ever, Fallout, I like... Being by yourself. I like being yeah. by myself. I don't know. I like that... You know, um, I just like, like, like the companions to me are like an extraneous. You don't even bring the dog? Um, did I ever bring the, yeah, well, ah, uh, yes. To be honest. I think what's interesting, like, at least in Fallout 4, I, I missed him at uh, first. And so how I. How did you miss I the dog know. in Fallout 4? I don't know. Holy like, crap. Literally, literally, I don't know because I remember everyone was like, everyone was like, because he's at the little gas station, right? Yeah. Like, he's like, I don't know. I even went into the gas station. I have no idea how wow. I, mean, I, I put like, I don't know, 80, 90 hours to Fallout 4. And so, but I was like, I mean, eventually someone no, told me. You can me, lose the dog. Yes. But you can get him back. Like, well, he you goes just back need... to like a dog, like a, to a. Um, to a dog, a dog house, a dog house somewhere. Build a dog house, and then yeah, and then the dog he will show up. Nice. Yes, yes. I would and cur- say, and currently that's where he is in in my in my um, town. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'll say is like I think for gameplay reasons, that's the only reason why I tend to not mention 
like Veronica or Lily because they're really melee oriented and I'm typically a guns character and they wind up like in your way in my way I like those characters it's just like gameplay wise I'm like keep the line of fire clear so I'll have Eddie and Boone you know just blasting away at stuff okay and on that note preferred build I always I always take guns uh sometimes I like guns sneak and explosives that is like I'm I love stealth murder and so I'll do like you know I'll sneak around and set up a bunch of mines and stuff and then you know blast someone's head and then they all come running and blow up and I laugh and then you know just loot their bodies <laughs> uh, you know it's funny for me I I generally play I like to have like just I, I can be a min maxer I think a lot of us are but I, yeah. I get to be like a min maxer but like how I really try to the, the kind of thing I try to build is just is just sort of like this like heavily armored medium range guy. I don't know how to explain it. Like he's boring. Like I'll totally, <laughs> I, I, I build boring characters that way. Um, but that, I don't know. That's what I like. I, I like this. I don't like, like I don't always play like, I don't love sneaky characters. Although weirdly enough in um, Dishonored, I love sneaking in Dishonored. Um, and I'm not the snipe him from a hundred miles away. I am. Um, I, I get bored. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. I get bored. Right. So I just like the, I want to be this guy just, but, you know, I don't know. I would be the, the SWAT guy. He kicks in the door, throws the flashbang down, and just murders everybody. Nice. That's my, yeah, so, I, I really that's like... my goal in life. No. I, I really like to see the, the combo of, like, I set up a bunch of explosives, and then I, like, stealth start murdering people, and they all start getting really agitated. And then they figure out where they am, I am, and, and they right. run at me, and then they blow up. And then I laugh. <laughs> like, see, that's my, like... That's my... You sound a lot like my son. That's <laughs> what my son would do. Nice. As long as you give me the biggest laser cannon that yes. you can possibly get, and it nice. just turns everybody into piles of ash, I'm good. That's your thing, yeah. The Tesla Beaten uh, prototype. Yes, exactly. Uh, in Fallout 4, one of my absolute favorite things was the Automatron DLC, because you could get that poor little like robot, stick her into the um, uh, into the thing, and turn her into a giant killbot, right? <laughs> like. With dual Gatling gun lasers and tank treads and, like, <laughs> missile launchers and everything. And, like, she has, like, the Terminator, like, single eye. No, the Cylon single eye. <laughs> and you're just like, hello. She's like, you're just like, oh, my God. But she's amazing to have as a companion. Yeah, I really hope that someone hacks our Spectobot downstairs <laughs> and makes the eye. <laughs> Yeah, we have yeah, a security, a security bot. We have a security yeah. bot downstairs. Not Obsidian doesn't have a security bot. I will say that one of my favorite things in Fallout Four, because I min- I like I built like twenty settlements and gave them all mm-hmm. like missile missile launchers, was was like, oh, this settlement's being attacked, and then I just load in and I just hear like five missiles launching, yep. and then yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, it's done. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right, last question: preferred mods, or do you go uh, unmodded? No, what what mods would I? I mean, I like. I'm trying to think what my I literally are. only use my own mod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cheating. Oh, I made it for I myself. <laughs> like I'll do like 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 you know, later on after with all Bethesda games and other games, like I'll do the I'll do like some of the grab like the the like t- some texture mods and stuff like that. I'm trying to think Oh, I know. The for, for well at least for Fallout 4, um I did the dialogue mod where you can actually see, see what, all the options. see what you're going to what see what you're going to say. Um, and choose that before instead of instead of their kind of short, sweet things. I like yeah. that. All right. Any chance that you, my guys, might ever return to the world of Fallout? <laughs> I, you know, we would like we. I mean, it was like we were saying it was so awesome to get to do Fallout New Vegas, and it was it was sort of like this maybe is our only chance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if ever if it ever were to happen that we would we're another fall, we'd absolutely 
talk to Bethesda about it and think about it. But um, but at this point in time, uh, there is nothing on the table where we would be working on another Fallout. All right. Fergus, Josh, thanks for coming on the show. And you should go check out the retrospective in which I talked to both of them about how Fallout New Vegas became a cult classic. Now, we're going to keep going. Don't go away. All right, Nadia, we uh, are going to keep it relatively short with the comments today. We just got one. This is from Jero MC, and it's another perfect team, Nadia. All right, uh, this is not a this is not a theme team like last week's with the robot, which, by the way, was awesome. This is my favorite one so far. But this one, all right, the leader is Makoto from Persona Three. He's already proven to be a capable leader, and the ability to summon multiple personas make him a jack of all trades, which I kind of like since versatility is always a good thing. I don't know, p- picking a, pers- a persona protagonist almost feels like cheating because they can use all of the summons. <laughs> and they're kind of All of the personas. All right, the mage is Neku plus Joshua. Or cheating, holy crap. I mean, <laughs> since the world ends with you characters can't fight alone, I paired Neku with Joshua, who's basically a god, so they could deal maximum damage. So they're just together as a pair. This is a very technically adept team. Uh, the fighter, once again, another pairing, Dante plus Dimitri from Project Cross Zone. Mm. I love that pair. And since they fight together as a unit, I decided to put them together, mainly because I love their flashy combos and style. Also, they can deal a lot of damage. Dimitri, of course, being from uh, Darkstalkers. Right. Okay, that guy. Vampire Man. Yes. Vampire Man plus Dante. Hmm. it works out well because dante is also a demon yes exactly do you never play dark stalkers uh i did uh but god it's been so long i just remember the sasquatch was canadian of course of course you would notice that (laughs) how can i not i'm like there's more to us than snow you know a little (laughs) bit not much but snow no i embrace the snow I i love the snow i think that's I, I don't say that there's more to Minnesota than snow. No, it's all it's all about the snow. <laughs> Everything is snow. We eat snow. We drink snow. We make love to snow. You <laughs> okay? The tank is Magnolia from Bravely Second. Mm-hmm. I loved this fierce and sweet character, and her ability to have jobs would also be perfect for versatility, since she can be basically anything. Yes, she Magnolia is the one with the French accent, or the was it a Quebecois or a French accent? She had a. a- parisian accent and the it's funny because she's from a moon and of course the, the moon people in that game all had french accents but there was like of course an offshoot tribe that also spoke french but they were based on earth and they had the quebecois accent quebecois quebecois my husband says and fin- drives me crazy and finally the support is luigi <laughs> it's not a great fighter but the party needs a comic relief which luigi could provide in spades also since he's more scared he can be on the back supporting the other characters mario hey oh. luigi when he's when he's pushed to it he, he can screw shit up like you could he could do a lot of damage with that vacuum cleaner of his he can like i haven't played mario and rabbits yet but he's a sniper like you don't screw with a sniper <laughs> I love that he's a sniper. I mean, Luigi is a sniper. It's just so messed up. You know, I might have to get Mario plus Rabbids after all. Yeah, I, my husband's playing it now, and I, I want to give it a try, too. It looks like stupid fun, but it's supposed to be really good. Uh, I'm in the middle of Metroid and all the sports games, plus Ooh. Destiny 2. Which, by the way, Destiny 2 is pretty good. Yeah, I, I read your, I think it was your Twitter that said that. Yeah, uh, I, I'm digging it. it uh, the, the art direction, the graphics are really good, but... 
I promised I wouldn't be talking about Destiny 2 on this podcast, so... <laughs> You're safe. Everybody's safe. Read the side. So, Makoto, Neku plus Joshua, Dante plus Dimitri, Magnolia, and Luigi. What do you think of this team, Nadia? Uh, I think whatever they're going after is totally dead. <laughs> totally dead? Yeah. Well, th- th- he has, like, this super-powered team, and, you know, the bad guy is going to be just, like, flattened. Oh... Uh... I thought you were talking about the characters themselves, and I'm like, oh, Luigi's not really dead, but I guess he deals with ghosts. <laughs> Luigi knows ghosts, man. And of course, we have a vampire and a demon. Uh, Neku's dead. Joshua is kind of dead, but he's also a god thing. There's a lot... Oh, and... Mm, uh, I'm not going to say anything about Persona 3, but uh, there seems to be a real theme of death going on. The theme of Persona 3 was also death. That's right, the whole Tartarus thing. Oh my god, I just blew my own mind. I found the theme. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. All right, and they'll uh, and they were. Uh, Jero also talked a little bit about our fall preview. Said that I'll say that I'm really looking forward to playing Xenoblade Chronicles Two, Superstar Saga Remake, and Pokemon Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. Also, I loved the original Xenoblade on the new 3DS, and it was what got me to play it, since I don't have nearly as much free time to play on the TV as I have to uh, play on the go. As for another RPG report, I'd love to see you two tackle Nier or Witcher 3, since I have both but haven't gotten around to playing them, so it'd be a nice incentive to finally take them off of the pile. I think we got to play Nier Automata, Nadia. I actually downloaded it. Mm. And uh, I started it, but uh, I'm uh, playing uh, Ease 8 for now, so... Yeah, uh, we're about a we're like about a month away from the SNES Classic coming out, and uh, unfortunately, we've hit the teeth of it. And there are a lot of games I want to be playing right now. But uh, you know, I really want to do. You know what RPG report I really want to do? What's that? Secret of Mana report. Oh, that would be fun. I, I can't remember. You said you hadn't played it, right? I have not played it, and oh. I see. The SNES Classic coming out is my big opportunity. I think that would be great. I mean, I don't think it would take us too long. It's not a very long game. Is it? I, it always seemed pretty long when I was reading the Nintendo Power Strategy Guides about it. Well, that was like in the good old days when time stretched out to infinity. But uh, yes. compared to like Persona 4, it's um, it's not quite as long. Not that it's, it's short, don't get me wrong. But you're, you're talking about the 16-bit days when RPGs averaged like 30 hours. Near Automata is also extremely relevant, so I think that there are a couple options. Yeah. yeah, talking about spoilers, I, I've been told that that is not a game that you want spoiled. <laughs> That's a good point. Mm. All right. Uh, okay, so Axe of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold, and many ways to connect to us. Follow us on Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, etc. as U.S. Gamernet. Nadia and I, she is at Nadia Oxford. I am at the underscore catbot. We stream every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, we've been streaming a whole lot of Destiny. Mm-hmm. Katie and Mike have become like partners in crime. Like, they're <laughs> always streaming together. I, I like that, actually. That's cute. Uh, and of course, we have our other podcast, US Gamer Podcast, our flagship podcast that runs every Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And this past week, we did our review event war stories and i told a few and then i discovered that nadia's never been to one no that's right uh, other than the uh the sort of one for the assassin's creed game but no i've never like been to a, a review event they sound well we're creepy. gonna have to we're gonna have to fix them because they're kind of <laughs> gross but you can find you can hear all the details on the podcast and oh yeah we also talk about destiny 2 and sam metroid samus returns oh and speaking of metroid samus returns we're gonna have a special guest on the podcast 
the U.S. Gamer Podcast next week. You know who's coming back, Nadia? Jeremy. The one and only Jeremy Parrish. Well, She'll be, be talking about some Metroid with us, which is going to be pretty exciting. That'd be awesome. I, I really wish I could be on Retronauts, but he likes people to be there, like, in person. Mm. Yes. Well, you know, if you want to sit in a, a kind of a smelly room for eight hours recording podcasts, he'll totally have you if you can get down to San Francisco. <laughs> oh, boy. Sitting in smelly rooms, my favorite pastime. I love recording podcasts with that crew, but, I mean, it's literally... You go into kind of a sketchier part of Soma, which is the south of Market area, mm-hmm. and it's in this kind of rundown neighborhood. And you go into a shared space, and it's in a vault. Wow! Yeah, it would be. Yeah, with all of the the podcast stuff, you're in this cramped little room. And after two hours in there, I just want to get out. I don't know how they do that all weekend. Yeah, it's amazing. They they dedicate themselves then because it's, I've been I've been to live podcasts. Like I did one for at Ryerson University, um, and that was yeah it was like a tiny room, you know, a whole bunch of people, microphones everywhere, smelling up really rapidly. Yeah, so it's an event. Indeed. Okay, so make sure also to check out on Monday the U.S. Gamer website we're gonna have a big retrospective on fall new vegas hope you enjoyed the interview but in the meantime thanks for listening we'll be back next friday as always and for nadia and myself thanks for listening and happy adventuring